Hey, we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us on the JF Podcast. It is our hope that this most recent talk teaches you, inspires you, and challenges you to live the life you were designed to live. If this message has helped you in some way, help someone else by sharing it. And if you want more information about who we are, what we do, or you'd like to contribute to our community, you can find us at JolietNaz.org. Thanks so much for listening. Well, good morning. It's a great week coming up. It's going to be 4th of July this week, in case you didn't know that. Um, I don't know where you are. If you don't know, it's 4th of July. But hey, I hope you have a good, is it week or weekend? I can't tell since it's in the middle of the week. Is it just one giant weekend or do you just get one day off? I don't know. 4th of July week and enjoy it, whatever it is for you. Um, but we're glad that you're here this morning. If you haven't been here over the course of the summer, we have been in this series called The Good and Beautiful Community. And the reason why we decided to address this very idea is because so many of us have grown up with the notion that um, our relationship with Jesus is a personal relationship with Jesus. And that is very true. We want you to have a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. We want that for you. But so often we begin to think that we don't need people around us. We don't need the church to encourage us in order to have that relationship. And we've said this, a personal relationship with God can't thrive without people. That's right. A personal relationship with God can't thrive without people. And so if you've been with us over just the last few weeks, you know that we've kind of been addressing this idea of disagreement and agreement. Um, that when we come into this place and when we gather as a community, we are going to disagree on a few things. And that's okay. But we've said this, that as Christ followers... He is the foundation, he is the starting point for where that disagreement begins. So it doesn't matter where we are, we both agree that Christ is the center. And because of that, instead of walking out, we're going to work it out. That's what we said. We're, instead of walking out, we're going to work it out together. And so we camped out there two weeks ago. We stayed there again last week. And so really, this is kind of a trilogy. Um, this is kind of a different kind of uh, disagreement that we're going to be working on or trying to address. But it's, man, it's, it's just been good. It's been good for me. I'm learning a lot, and I'm trying to practice, and I fail often at what we, I preach. And so, yes, I am a hypocrite. Um, and I'll just admit that to you today. Um, so join me on the journey, would you? <laughs> but let's pray before we begin. Lord, we give thanks for this time. I pray that you would be with us as we discover your word and we discover how we can become a good and beautiful community. I pray that we would be encouraged and that we would hear these words as your words and not somebody else's. So it's in your name we pray this. Amen. Well, many of you know that um, Janelle and I, we uh, lived in Topeka before we moved to Joliet. And the one thing that I loved most about Topeka, there are days that I miss Topeka. The one thing I loved is that it is a family-friendly city. We, we just say it's a family-friendly city. We love where we live now. We love the street we live on. There's tons of kids. I mean, we, we, I mean just kids everywhere. And our boys enjoy it. But, but I would say this. Many of you have lived in Chicago your entire life. You just don't know how expensive it is here. I mean, it's extremely expensive. You go out to Kansas and you move to Topeka, you're going to pay pennies, pennies for what you pay hundreds of dollars for here. And so we loved it. We lived across from a school and our boys could go and they could run around in the parking lot or hang on the monkey bars or go down a big slide and they would play on the soccer fields and the basketball hoops. And it was, it was just great. Um, the other thing that we loved also was that um, 
and, and this is not the experience here, is it was a firework-friendly state and city. And so on the 4th of July, instead of going to your local park or wherever you go to watch fireworks, uh, we would um, light our own fireworks in the street, which is, I don't know if you know that, that's a really good time. You pull the barbecue out front, you put it in your front yard, you, everybody comes out to the street and you light fireworks. It's like running a gauntlet. You decide to drive on the 4th of July, there's a good chance you're not coming home with your car. It's going to be lit up on fire in the middle of the street because everybody's out lighting stuff up. And I always tell this, it's a great story. Our neighbors were a bunch of college kids. And I love college kids because their frontal lobe isn't in full force yet. And so what they would do is they would take a construction hat and they would screw a mortar tube. You know, the, the, the mortars are the things that you watch at the park when they go up and explode. They would screw a mortar tube into a construction hat. And then in the house, in the house, not outside, in the house, they would light the mortar while it was on top of their head. And then they would run out across the stairs, out into the middle of the street, and it would shoot up in the sky off their head. It was really cool. But I asked them one time, I said, have you ever considered uh, what would happen if you tripped? No, we haven't thought about that. Well, what's across the street? There's a house there. Well, that would shoot into the house. It would catch up in flames. I mean, you, you can see what's going to happen. And they're like, thanks for the advice. We appreciate that. And they just kept doing what they were doing. And we our boys loved it. They would watch them. They thought they were really cool. And, um, but, you know, we had, a, we had a zoo that was just north of us, not too far, just a few minutes down the street. Very cheap, fun to go to. Uh, the pools, when it was 115 degrees, there were pools all over Topeka, and you would just pay a few dollars for your family. Um, my favorite thing, and I, and I told our last service this, my favorite thing about the city was they had this gym called Great Life. And Great Life was connected to every golf course within the city. And so for a, a simple $20 a month, you could work out and golf as much as you wanted. There was no limit. I mean, some of you will pay $50 just to golf one time. Imagine golfing for $20 as many times as you want and working out and swimming in the pools. I mean, it was cheap. I say all that to say that Topeka was a family-friendly city. And the reason why we loved it is because it served, it served our family's needs, right? It served our needs. And I would say this, that... Um, I love having my needs met, and that's why we love that city. And my guess is, if we were to have a conversation, you would also say, I love having my needs met, right? I don't know if you know this, but we, have, we live in a modern day where everything is geared and built around you. I mean, you don't, I mean it's just obvious. It's, it's, it's in plain sight, and we've just become so accustomed to it, we don't even see it. But think about it. Nobody really wants to season hamburger meat and to cook them on the grill. It takes 30, 40 minutes when you can go right down the street to McDonald's and within a matter of seconds have a Big Mac. Mm, I love Big Macs. Big Macs right in the middle of your lap. I mean, you don't even have to prepare it or cook it. Uh, taco meat, who wants to season it, cook it up, and to cut up all the lettuce and the tomatoes? When you can go to Taco Bell and eat cat meat. I mean, it's just good stuff. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. I love Taco Bell. Good stuff there. Um, I think. I don't go there very often, but so I've been told. But you have it right away, right? I mean, music, music. Some of, some of you who are beautifully aged know this, that you remember when you would have to go down to the record store or the, the music store to buy your music, and you would have to buy records or A-tracks or cassette tapes or CD, you know, you'd actually buy CDs and stuff like that. And, and now, uh, for just a few dollars, like 15 bucks, you can, you can listen to whatever music you want to listen to via Spotify or uh, Apple Music. It's right at the tip of your fingers. 
And it's there to serve your needs. I mean, movies. We no longer go to Blockbuster to get movies. Um, I don't know if you've discovered this yet. Have you, has anybody heard of Instacart? Come on, any Instacart fans? Matt and Holly Odom introduced us, and they gave us a $10 gift certificate. If you don't know this, I'm going to send each of I will text every one of you today Instacart coupons. Um, here's what, I mean, it is made to serve you. Uh, you don't have time to go to the store, or you've been out of town on vacation, and you come back and there's nothing in the fridge. You can actually shop online via Jewel or Aldi or whatever, and you can pick exactly what you want. You want organic eggs, you can get organic eggs. You want regular celery, you can get regular celery, whatever it is. You order it, and people bring it to your front door. I didn't believe it was true, so we just tried it out, um, and it is really cool. But all of, all of that to say, we live in a culture that exists to serve you. It exists to meet your needs. The community exists to meet your needs. And I would say this, and, and, and you can push back, and you can, you can maybe disagree with me, and that's okay. But I think, for, to some degree, we have brought that mentality into this community. We've brought that mentality into this church, that this community exists to meet my needs. And I would say this, um, we do a, a, the church has done a great job, or a bad job, however you like to see it, over the course of, of its history of meeting people's needs and making people happy. But the problem with that is this, is that when we begin to meet people's needs and we begin to make people happy, we actually lower, lower God's expectations for their life by simply making them happy and meeting their needs. Do you ever think about that? That when we come into this community and, and, and you want something or we prefer something or you want this church to meet your needs, that we actually are lowering God's expectations for your life and what God wants for your life. And we actually live in the less rather than moving into what God wants and, and the more for us than he's called us to. Uh, perfect example. Many of you, you know, we have this thing called Project 23. I love Project 23. Some of you give weekly to Project 23. Project 23 is the thing where we say we're going to skip one meal and we're going to give that money. There's a little box. You just place it in the back back there. And here's what we've learned to, to prove my point. Some of you, let me just caveat up front. Let me just say this. Some of you have been beneficiaries of Project 23 and you are committed to this community. So that does not, this does not pertain to you. What I'm about to say doesn't pertain to you. But what we've learned is there is a good majority of people who have a need, whether it's a, a gas bill or whether it's rent or whatever it may be. And what we've learned is when we stop meeting their need, when we stop giving, they stop going. When we stop giving to them and we stop helping them out, they stop being part of what's going on here. They, they cease to exist in our community. And what we've learned is that we're not actually making them Christ followers and better people. By meeting their immediate need, which I think is essential... We are actually lowering God's expectations for their lives. And here's the reason why. When God meets with people, when Jesus meets with people, he, does, he, don't, he doesn't only meet their physical need, but he typically addresses their spiritual need first. That's why Jesus says, hey, listen, go and sin no more. And then he says, get up from your mat and walk. He addresses their immediate, their immediate need, which is their spiritual need. And so I would say this, that we've been defined by a culture that says... The community exists to serve my needs. And I would say that we as a church, the church overall, the Big C Church, we have bought into this idea that the community exists to meet our needs. But I want to re revamp that and rethink, why does this church exist? Why does this church exist? And here's the, here's the thing. It doesn't exist to serve our needs, but this place exists to shape our lives. 
This place right here, when you come in here every Sunday, the reason why we gather, the reason why we preach, the reason why we sing, the reason why we encourage you and we, we give you something to do when you leave here is because we think this is important and this is the process of shaping you into the image of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is worth following. And so this is a struggle, not just for us when it comes to meeting our needs. This community exists to meet my needs. But this was a struggle that people faced long ago. And so today we don't actually need to rewrite the rules. We don't need to come up with a new paradigm on how we solve this problem or how we get over ourselves or how we address people who are thinking that it's all about them. We don't have to rewrite this. The good news is there's this wonderful gentleman named Paul who writes, a, he was a real person. He wrote a real letter to real people in a real city that many of you know called Thessalonica. And he writes to them. And I love what Paul does because he just doesn't dive right in and beat them up in the face. He does often what we do at our staff meetings. He, he starts out and he says, hey, let's start with the good things. This is what we do in our staff meeting. Hey, what went well this weekend? What are some stories we want to celebrate? What are some things that we're... We're just, we're stoked about it. And so we talk about those things. And then we move into, well, what needs work? We know there are things that need help. We know there are things that need work. What needs work? And instead of just staying there, we say, okay, what are the action steps we can take? And so when Paul addresses this community, he starts by, by praising them and talking about what they're doing well. He says, your faith, your faith is known everywhere. You're an amazing, beautiful community, and because of what you're doing, people know you all over the world because of your faith. And so he compliments them. And then later we'll find out as he goes into the letter, he begins to address an issue within the church, and the issue is there are people who think the community exists to serve their needs. He says, this is a problem. Your faith is known all over the world, but this is a problem. And then he gives them action steps. And so that's kind of the mantra for today. He's gonna, we've already discovered, hey, this is the positive. Your faith is known all over the world. But now he's going to move into, he's going to move into what needs to be addressed. Because it is bringing this community down. So here's what he says. He starts out. Very encouraging. He says, live in peace. Live in peace with each other. And, and that's a standalone sentence, and it's important because peace is where the, he wants us to go. Pre, peace is the primary goal of where he wants this community to end up. And he wants to say to them, there is a lack of peace. There's a little bit of disagreement. There is dissension within the community. And he said, I don't know if you know this, that people are no longer hearing about your faith. You are no longer the example to the world. You are no longer uh, uh, attracting people. And people don't want to be part of your community because there is a lack of peace. So he says, we have to get this right. This is the goal. This is what we're shooting for. And, and if we can't get here, we're in trouble. And I would just say this, thinking about what Paul has to say to them, I often wonder, when we come in on, in on Sunday, is this a peaceful experience or is it a painful experience? When we think about the overall church for people on Sundays, is it a peaceful experience? Do I walk in with a sense of, wow, this is life-giving, this is hopeful, this is exciting? Or do I walk in thinking, oh my goodness, like, what is going on here? People backbiting, people gossiping, people, there's, you know, there's just disagreements, people arguing. Like, is it a painful place or is it a peaceful place? And that's what Paul is, is, is kind of prodding and poking at the Th uh, Thessalonians. He's saying, come on, guys. Like, you were a great community, you were a beautiful community, but there's a lack of peace. And so he says, we can't leave it like that. 
So he gives them action steps, right? We said action steps are next. And so here's what he says. I love it. He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, we urge you, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to warn those, that's essential, warn those, warn those, look at your partner and say, warn those, come on, look at your partner, say, warn those, wake up now, because this is important. If you don't wake up, we're not going to get this right. He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to warn those who are idle and disruptive. Idle and disruptive. Now, I know immediately on the outside looking in, we would think that these are the new followers, right? These are the new followers creating all the problems. You know, they're still learning what Jesus is about and what he's like. And they come in with their pagan ways and their pagan, you know, practices. And they're still trying to get everything together. And so they're pretty disruptive and we need to address that. And actually what Paul begins to address is people, people who have come to a deeper theological understanding of God's plan for the world. Which is a nice way of saying they figured out who God is and what he wants to do with the world. And so he's, he, what he does is he begins to address mature believers who think they have arrived in their faith and they've stopped contributing to the community, the overall good of the community. See, they thought because God's coming back, why should I do any work? You can feed me. You can clothe me. You can help me. I've come to this wonderful understanding of God. I know exactly who he is. I don't need to grow anymore. I'm just going to mooch off you. And Paul says, you can't let these people, these mature believers, these are the ones who are the astute, you know, uh, they, they've got the theology down, they've got God down. He said, you can't allow these believers, these mature believers to be disruptive. You can't do it. And so I think if Paul were here today, he, he would step in and say, Listen, church, there are people, you need to warn the people who think that they've arrived in their faith. And, and, and in their faith, they become, he says idle, I would just say lukewarm. They become lukewarm in their faith, and they stop contributing to the mission of the church. They stop contributing, they stop participating. And he says, you can identify those people, you know those people that you need to warn. Listen to this, by their demands and how you'll meet their needs. We know the people that we need to address. We know the people that we need to talk to, but the people who have demands and who want you to meet their needs. He says, I need you to warn them because they're disruptive and they're lukewarm. And you know, I mean, it's pretty clear what God says in the scripture, what we do with lukewarm people. He says, I will spit you, I will spew you out of my mouth because you're so distasteful. So he says, warn them. Now, I don't know if you know this, but when I think of the word warning, it's not a positive, warm, fuzzy. Right? When you think of something that's warning you, I think of panic. I think of anxiety. I think of the other day when I was uh, home alone because I was a bachelor this week and I was uh, making dinner. I was grilling outside. And all of a sudden, tornado sirens go off. Hello. I didn't know there was a tornado on the way. Apparently there was a few miles away. And so, you know, panic sets in. And so what do you do? Um, I ran outside and tried to see if I could find it. That's what we do in Kansas. You just... Dude needs a basement. Uh, basements are for the neighbors, not for me. Um, that's why they'd be alive at the end of it and not me. But anyway, uh, I would say this, that when you think of warning somebody, you don't think of a warm fuzzy. My kids, every day when they're getting ready for school, we finish breakfast and we say, you need to go change, you need to brush your teeth, you need to get your hair done. There are steps in order to get on the bus. We need you to do these things. 
And so you would think that saying, you have 10 10 minutes till your bus gets here. You have five minutes till your bus gets here. You have two minutes until your bus arrives. And by now, you're warning them. You're shouting at them. And guess what? They're still riding hoverboards. They're still wrestling. They'll start playing video games. They're still outside playing dodgeball with only their underwear on. I mean, come on. Like, that's what they're doing. And, and I find that the more that we warn them, right, the more that I warn them, the more that they are put off by what I'm telling them, and they want to argue with me. They want to disagree with me. They want to push back and they want to argue, you know, and they get frustrated. Carter kind of starts to get a little frustrated and you can sense it. And he gets a little panicked and he's, you know, and it's not healthy and it's not good. And my guess is when you warn people, it often feels like you're at war with people, right? When you warn people, it often feels like you're at war with people. But Paul says, hey, we can do this in a way. We can do this in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're at war in the relationship with people. Right? Come on, you've, you've addressed a good friend who is dating somebody that you know wasn't good for them. And, and so you said to them, I don't think this person's good for you. And instead of them saying, that's great advice, I think I'll dump them. They said, uh, you're no longer my friend, bye. Or, or maybe you said to somebody, I don't think you should take that job. It's a lot of hours. I mean, it's just something to consider. And, and, and they're like, well, you're just jealous because you're not promoted. You're not going to make as much as I do. And, you know, get out of my face. See, whenever we try to warn people, they become embittered, and it feels like you're at war with them. It's a painful experience for so many of us. But it's interesting that the, word, the words that Paul uses, if we kind of unpack this word warn, it literally means to make right what is wrong. Come on now. To make right what is wrong. Hang in with me here. To make right what is wrong. That is the goal. Often when we warn people, we're not really concerned about making it right. We just like to tell them what's wrong. And so he says, I need you to make right what is wrong. And then he says, he continues, he says, to do it without embittering people. The word warn literally means to warn without embittering people. Or to do it without making people upset or angry. Or to the point where you can no longer speak into their life. I've done this with Janelle. I I love sharing stories because it just shows you how human we are. But we came back from Aldi's the other day. And Janelle and I disagree about how to put groceries in our car. Um, And so, you know, the other day she opens up the whole hatch and I'm like, you can't do it that way. And I just said, we've talked about this. You can't do it that way. And um, embitterment right there. I can tell you the conversation was over with. And she said, you can load the groceries. And I got in, you know, she got in. And um, yeah, not a a great start to the conversation. I was trying to warn her because I didn't want the groceries to fall out. But all I said was, um, don't do it that way. It's wrong, you know, and that wasn't helpful. And so often, again... Warning feels like we're at war with people, but Paul says, no, 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 we can do it in a way where you need to correct what is wrong, but you can also do it without making people upset, and you can do it without embittering people. I like that. So I can hear you because you're so into this, and this is the best message you've ever heard. I get that. Um, You're asking, how do we do that? How do we warn people? And so here's the thing. He says this. Encourage the disheartened. He said, encourage the disheartened. I don't know if we have this scripture, this text, it's in Thessalonians. It says, encourage the disheartened. All right, you all have to write this down. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Help the weak. And then I love this. He says, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. But Paul begins to say, if you want to warn people, I need you to encourage people. That's how he starts it. You want to warn people? I need you to encourage people. 
And what's so interesting, we can't see this for face value, but the word that Paul uses for warn is actually the root of the word encourage. That's exciting. I don't know. I'm so amped about that revelation, and I can tell that you are too. But this idea that we can, we can warn people, but we can do it with encouragement, that when we are encouraging people, we're warning them. And if we're going to warn them, we encourage them. And this is where Paul wants us to go. He says, I need you to start with encouragement. But, but you know this, right? If you start with encouragement, aren't you just buying into their needs? If you start with encouragement, aren't you just telling them what they want to hear? If you start with encouragement, aren't you moving to a place where we're not actually moving them to the better life that God calls them to, but we're actually just catering to the less that they're already living in? And so Paul helps us, right? He's, re he's slowly revealing this to the church because he knows this is so essential. You know, he says, I want you to warn the disruptive. I want you to encourage them. And then he goes on and he says the most important line that so many of us struggle with. He says, look for the best in each other. Look for the best in each other and always do your best to bring out the best. I added the best. It's the Brad version, I guess. But he says, when you warn people, I need you to encourage them. And you're saying, how do we encourage people? He says, look for the best in each other. And always do your best to bring the best in others out. Look for the best and do your best to bring out the best. I love that thought. And here's where I love that thought is because it is human nature. It is human nature to notice the negative. Right? Typically, if we want to address something that's wrong in people's life, we start with what is negative in their life. We just go right for the dagger. Like, we just put it right in them. There's no waiting. There's, you just dive right in. And immediately, we see something wrong, and we just say what's wrong. Whether it's your friend, whether it's a relationship, whether it's the systems uh, that you live in in terms of work or church or whatever it is, if you see something wrong, you just say what's wrong. You notice what's wrong. And it's human nature. And this is why Paul says this. It's human nature for us to always notice the negative. And he says, mm -mm -mm. you want to warn them? You want them to listen to you? You want to speak into their life and help them move into the better life that I'm calling them to? He says, I need you to start with the best and bring out the best and do your best to do that. So in real time, how do we do this? I mean, because, because when you see something wrong, you want to address it immediately. You just want to go right at it. So when you're, when you're sitting with your friend whose marriage is failing or it's not going well, instead of saying, well, you're an idiot, you should have done this, 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 and this, we start out by saying, hey, what attracted you to your spouse? What do you love about them? What do you appreciate about them? Tell me about when you were first dating. What was that like for you? See, there was something that brought you together. There was something good about that relationship. And I want, I want you to talk about that first. And what you'll find, it's almost like giving thanks about things. The more thankful you are, the more thankful kind of person you become. The happier, the more joyful person you are. So when you start with something positive, people respond well. They're giving you an avenue to open up into the conversation, to touch on things that are so difficult. You want to help somebody else out? Start with the positive. We, we do this with our kids. We try to do it with our kids. Um, i got to be honest. Uh, I didn't say this in the last service because my son was here. But Miles, this last week, um, he just received an award at this camp for being um, most compassionate, or most friendly, which I love. 
And then we were over at some guest house the other night, poor Holly, and Holly said, I need you to stay in the backyard. And Miles looks at her and says, well, what if I want to go in the front yard? <laughs> I was angry. We don't talk like that to people in this house. And so I went outside, and I was really frustrated that I just said, and, and instead of really addressing it there, um, I just said, I need you to go in and apologize to Holly. Go in there right now and, and apologize. And he did, he did. But it took me a couple days, and last night we were, we were putting him to bed. I was laying down next to him, and I wanted to go right in. I wanted to say, your words were rude. The way you've been talking to your mom, I don't appreciate it. I wanted to start at the negative. And Miles has a tendency, he's got a little ginger in him, he's a redhead, you know. Uh, he gets a little gingivitis every once in a while. Uh, gingivitis, I like to call it that. Um, you correct him, he's going to push you away. And so I said to him, I said, hey bud, one of the things that I love about you most is that you're kind and you're compassionate. Like one of the things that God has ingrained in you, one of the things that he's made you for is to be loving and kind and compassionate. And I said, do you, do, you, do you think your words over the last couple days to Miss Holly and to your mom have, have been that? And he said, no. <laughs> and then I said, because we don't like making rules in our house, we like to tell our kids what they can do. I said, I know you can do better. I know you can make better choices. Do you think that you can use encouraging and life-giving words when you're talking to people that are in authority above you? He said, okay, Dad. And then he snuggled with me. But any other day, if I would have said, you did this, 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 and this, the kid would have pushed me away. He said, get out of my bed. I don't want to snuggle with you. I don't want to talk to you. And so this is why Paul gets it. This is why we need to understand that you start with the best in people and you continually do the best to bring it out. You just don't talk about it, right? Often we like to talk about what's good in people, but we don't like to bring it out of them. And the whole point is to make... Bring it out, because you know what? When you can bring it out, they're becoming that person. This is how we shape people. This is how we make Christ followers. This is how we mold people into the image of Jesus Christ. And so today I want to say this. This community, this church, does not exist to serve your needs, but it exists to shape your life. So now I need to have a father son conversation with our church. And I've got to do my best because when I was originally preparing, I just went right for the dagger. So today I want to say this. Here's what I love about our church. I love that our church is devoted to reaching lost people and that we want to lead people into a forward-moving relationship with Jesus Christ. Like, that's what we want to do. And there are many of you that are sitting here today that say, that's God's mission for us. That's what he wants for us. I'll contribute to that, and I'll do anything that it takes. And that's what I love about you. But in that, in that, in order to reach lost people, we have to continue to move forward in our own faith and reflect who Christ is to those people. And when I say that, what I'm saying is there needs to be a level of accountability in our life that I don't think has been present for quite some time in our church. 
that often when people come to our church, especially as, as a pastor, I don't want to ruffle feathers, I don't want to say mean things to you, and I don't want to address problems that are in your life. And so what we'll often do as pastors, and you do this as well, is you just tell people what they want to hear. You serve their needs, you make them happy, you make them feel the good, and we all go home and everybody has a false sense of hope. And I would say to you that there needs to be a level of accountability that we don't have right now. So one of the things we do on our staff every week when we gather is we ask this question. On a, zero, on a scale of 0 to 10, 10 being you are on fire for God, <laughs> and a 0 is you don't believe in God, where are you in your faith journey? We ask that question because we think it's important, and we want to know where you are. If I don't ask that question, I don't know where you are. And if you're not like a six, seven or above, there's a good chance that you're not leading well. And so we hold each other accountable. We say, where are you? Why are you struggling? What's the problem? And then we've also said this. It's not just we do this as a collective staff, but we've partnered each other, uh, females with females, males with males. So Todd and I, we've decided that every week we will call each other, and, and we may miss a week or so, um, but very often we will text each other and we'll say, what is God teaching you? Hey, what's God been saying to you? What have you been hearing from him? What's your biggest struggle? What's your biggest problem? And you know what's fun is often, I feel like I hear from God often, but I forget what God had to say often. And when he says, what is God teaching you? And I'm like, man, that's a good question. And then I have to go back and I have to look, but it's a reminder over and over and over of who God is calling me to be. But I couldn't do it if I didn't have Todd. And you know what's fun about Todd? Man, he's such, just a gracious person. What I love about him, especially when he's dealing with me, a painful pain in the rear end, um, he will often start by the positive. He, he practices, the, practices this in his own life. Todd will say to me, he said, I, will, I, think you're, I think you're a great pastor. So if you don't think I am, just be quiet for now. Um, but he says, I think you're a great pastor. I think you're doing a good job. I really like you. And so I know some of you find that hard to believe, but he does. And so he starts with the positive and, and inside, you got to be honest, that makes you feel good to know that there's at least one soul in this church that likes me. Um, and so I, it's like, that's where he starts. But, but then Todd will say, hey man, I've noticed this week that, that you know, you're, you're not as positive or you're not as, uh, you're kind of not who you typically are. And what's going on in your life? Oh man, I, here's what's going on, you know, and. And what's fun is the thing that had been holding me down all week that I couldn't express to anybody else, he was able to bring that out. But only because he said, here's what I see in you. I think you're awesome. I'm not seeing that right now. Let's get this right. And it is painful. And it's not fun. But when you have an accountability partner in your life, you will be moving forward. You will be shaped in God's image. You will continue to reflect more like Christ. And I think, I think, I think we need more leaders in this church who will stand up to people, especially the ones who are idle and disruptive and the ones who aren't contributing to the mission and the ones who are taking down the mission and the ones who are millstone around the church's neck. We need leaders to stand up and say, we love you, but we're going to hold you accountable. We love you, but we're going to speak truth into your life. We love you, and this is what we love about you, but here's something we see, and it's not healthy. And I think the more accountable we come, the more accountable we, we become, the more we look for the best in each other, the more we encourage each other, 
we in a roundabout way warn each other and we become a more peaceful, better looking, beautiful community which gives me hope, which gives me joy, which makes me think that when Paul says to this church, your faith has been known around the world, that could be true for us when we hold each other accountable. So I want to ask you this question. You've already seen it here, but I want to know this. Um, who holds you accountable? Who holds you accountable in your faith journey? Not just in your life. I get there are life coaches, but there are spiritual coaches. And I want to know who holds you accountable. Because you can't do this on your own. You can't see what's wrong with you. You may know what's wrong with you, but you don't know what it looks like on the outside. And so I want you to do two things. In the next week or the next month, preferably the next week, so we can get this going, I would like for you to find an accountability partner. I want you to find one person that you trust, who you know knows you and can speak life into you, but do it in a way that's constructive. Who holds you accountable? And I want you to start your accountable journey with them with this question of, what is it like to be on the other side of me? Now, that's not original to me. I heard that somewhere else, and I can't remember because it's so long ago, but that question stuck with me. So when you get with your partner, the first question that I want you to ask, if you know, we've known each other for a while, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And if, if you're sitting on the other side, and, and you know that it's painful, and you know that it's rough, look for the best. Start with the best. Encourage them. And as you encourage them, you're essentially warning them and you're moving them forward. And no longer are we going to allow people to live lesser lives. But we will live into the beauty that God has asked us to be. Have those conversations. What's God teaching you? What are you learning? What are you struggling with? What can be changed? Oh, you will be a better person because of it. But even more important, you will be a better person follower of Jesus and that's what changes lives so this morning one of the things we love to do is we love to gather at this table if you're serving communion if you'd come forward to serve those we know that it is hard to address people it is hard to address our own messes of our own lives and so this table this morning serves as a reminder that it is all done in grace that wherever we are in life, God is moving you forward with grace. And so as you come forward this morning, if you're on a faith journey and you're discovering who Jesus is in your life, we want you to come forward. We want you to receive. And we want you to have his grace in your life as you go forward and you begin to practice the very thing we've talked about. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. And we thank you for the letters that have been written over time of people who've gotten it wrong that can help us get it right. I pray that in this mission of correcting each other and warning each other, we would make right what is wrong. I pray that you would remind us daily, daily, that we should always be looking for the best in each other, that we have the best intentions for each other and that they have the best intentions for us as well. Lord, I pray that you would make us, make us even more devoted followers than we already are. 
I pray that you would check our hearts. If there's a sense that we've arrived in our faith and we've got it figured out, and yet we feel empty, we don't feel like this faith thing makes sense, we feel dead to some degree, if we find ourselves on the other end of not contributing to what's going on, I pray that you would speak into our lives and speak into our hearts and call us into something more because we are living lesser lives. I thank you for this church who has decided to be a church that will reach lost people. We thank you for those lives that have been changed. We thank you for the baptisms. We thank you for those that have said yes. And I pray that you would entrust us with more and more people who need to know you. Would you fulfill your mission through us? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.